Hey, it's George Free. Welcome to the Martial Arts Media Business Podcast. Another great interview for you today. Michael Scott from CMA Campbelltown Martial Arts in New South Wales. So I've known Michael for a little while. We've been working together in our partners group. You know, when you meet someone and they're not the front of the conversation, but when they speak, you want to listen because it's always packed with wisdom. In fact, uh, end of last year, we did something fun in our partners group and we gave out awards within the group. And Michael was named the Wisdom Whisperer. <laughs> and just for that reason, sits back, observes the conversation, and but when he speaks, it's packed with wisdom. Now, Michael talks about the three areas that he focuses on his life way beyond martial arts and actually how he has used his martial arts business as a vehicle to grow wealth and build generational wealth and talks about investment strategies and things that he does after that. So you're going to love it. I love doing this episode. Head over to martialartsmedia.com forward slash 138. You can download the transcript and all the resources. And please do me a favor. If you love this episode, share it with someone that you care about, a martial arts school owner or instructor. I'm sure they will get a ton of value from this. All right, let's jump in. Ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Are you ready? Keep this frequency clear. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, here we go. Check, check it out. You're listening to the Martial Arts Media Podcast, where you, the martial arts school owner, gets insider tips and secrets from leading experts to help you build a more profitable martial arts business. Now, here's your host, the founder of martialartsmedia.com. George Faree. This podcast episode is the audio version from a video that was published on martialartsmedia.com. For the full episode, to download the transcript and get all the show notes, head over to martialartsmedia.com. Enjoy. Michael Scott, welcome to the Martial Arts Media Business Podcast. Thanks, George. Um, Cass, I'm happy to be here, but I'm here. Hang on. I've got a guest on my podcast who's not happy to be here. Why is that? Well, it's nothing to reflect on you, George. It's just I prefer to stay out of the limelight if I can. I like to sit in the background and gather all my information, make my decisions from there. Right. Perfect. And that is the entire reason that I've actually invited you on the show. So uh, a bit of context, and then we'll, we'll jump into things. So... Michael, we've been working together for, for quite some time in our partners group, and end of last year, we did something fun, and we were giving out awards for just different aspects of value, what a lot of members in our community bring to the table. And uh, for Michael Scott, we, we deemed Michael the Wisdom Whisperer, uh, and we thought the Wisdom Whisperer was appropriate for Michael, pretty quiet, sitting in the background, observing but when he speaks, it's always of value, packed with wisdom of combination of between years in martial arts, building the business in the right way, investment portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. I had to really twist the arm here to get Michael on, but I know it's going to be super valuable as it is when we spend time together each week. So thanks for making the exception, Michael. You're welcome, George. It's funny, even though I say I don't like public speaking, I really don't like public speaking, but I've, in my previous working life, I've completed Toastmaster speaking, speaking courses and all this other stuff to help you speak better in public. 
I still don't like to do it. Perfect. <laughs> That's cool. So let's jump into some practicalities. I've got a first question I always like to ask. When it comes to marketing, attracting new students, what's been your go-to strategy, your strategy that's been most successful either recently or of, of all time? Of all time, I would have to say referrals. I think referrals has always been a, a great way to gain new students from day one till now. Um, that seems to be the best. If they're a referral, they're not a cold call, they're not, you know, they're not a warm lead, they're, they're a hot lead. You know, they're ready to go. So for my, for my money, I, as, a, as you've heard me say it a million times, George, I'll pay $100 every day of the week to get a good referral because um, I think that's, that's value. Um, apart from that, um, having been in the game for a long time, I've seen the, the change in where our clients come from and it, it started off, you know, like trading post ads to yellow pages ads to pink pages ads to local paper advertising, uh, a little bit of radio advertising. <coughs> Um, and now we're in the down the road of like um, down the rabbit hole with Google and Facebook advertising. Um, recent, I did my stats the other day actually, and Google is bringing in more students than anyone else at this stage. Interesting. We get more leads through Facebook, but we convert more through Google. I love that. It's very interesting how the dynamics have been shifting over the past couple of years. And if I if I really, if, if I had to add to that, if I think when, when I started working with martial arts school owners, um, I was probably not even active on Facebook, but I, I learned direct response marketing through Google ads. And it was always the, the go-to place for me because I knew it, it was always the more, at that time, it was the more complex machine to get going. But once you get it going, the, the maintenance is just a lot less because it's, search driven and not newsfeed driven and and the whole difference for for uh for, for those of you that listening that that don't know if you look at google leads uh you get intent people are more intent based and so they're actually going physically to the search engine to, to search for something whereas facebook it's interruption based meaning you've got to put things in front of the newsfeed for them to snap them out of their trance of looking at cats or procrastinating or doing whatever they're doing to with a good irresistible offer for them to actually respond to and there's definitely pros and cons to both there's definitely pros and cons on how they uh, how they can work together but it's it's the interesting dynamic for me is how it shifted from google was always the player and then facebook came in and facebook is just the go-to lead source and it still is for a lot of people but the mature system is Google with the mature ad platform. And I know a lot of people are getting a lot of issues with Facebook and uh, just pages being restricted or things being flagged because the AI isn't as dialed in where Google has really mastered this over time. And we seem to see the shift as people don't pay as much attention maybe to Facebook and, and social platforms and how Google is becoming Again, this powerhouse. So it's interesting. So you did the stats and a comparison of actually who's members and who's not members? I always, yeah. Each month I go through and I look at uh, where all our leads come from. So my um, CRM spits out a report of where all the leads have come from. And then I just refine that report and I just click in a button and say, okay, now I want to know what leads turned into active students. And it just goes bang. 
Nice. So it's, it it's makes life very easy for me in that respect. Um, and the other area, I guess, which I didn't mention is the website leads, which is something we're just starting to see a return on now. So as you know, you helped us in a, tweak our website a little bit. So we've just done a completely new website. So that's starting to gain momentum now as well. So I'll be interested to see where that goes as far as our leads and conversions over the next 12 months. Because um, we were one of the first martial arts, I guess, to have a website when websites first became a thing in Australia. But we didn't really do much with it. We just went to someone, had them create a little website for us, and we just sort of plotted along until now. And it's only now we decided, okay, well, we've played with Google, we've played with Facebook, we've played with everything else, let's play with the website leads and see where that goes. So, um, yeah, with your input, we've um, done a few tweaks to it and they've completed those tweaks for us. So looking forward to the next 12 months. Love it. So, so take us back, because uh, I, I mentioned you, you've been in the industry for, for quite a while. Uh, just give us a bit of an overview, your, your background, your story, how you got into martial arts and how everything's evolved to, to now. Uh, I guess going right back, I started in boxing when I was 10 years old. That was mainly driven through my father, who was um, ex-military. Um, so he taught me the basic skills in boxing, and then I went to PCYC like everybody else did back then and just boxed regularly there. I did that all through school until um, I was about 18, I think it was, and I got um, bored with it, to be honest. Um, I was looking for something else. And at that stage, Bruce Lee, all that sort of stuff was out. I always had an interest in the, the martial art movies, whatever was around. Um, I go back to, like, early days Phantom Agents and stuff like that, which was on Saturday morning. You may not even remember them. They were little phantom ninja guys who jumped up and down in trees and spat little stars at people. Right, yeah, I do, actually. But, yeah, that's, that's probably my first inkling into martial arts. Then when I turned about 18, I'd left school, started working, had money of my own. Um, a mate of mine rang me up and said, um, I found this thing to do. I said, what do you mean you found this thing to do? He said, I found a martial art for us to do. I said, what's it called? He said, it's Hapkido, Hapkido or something. I said, what do you mean it's Hapkido? He said, oh, I don't know, it's just, that's what it's called. And he said, I'll read a bit about it. And it just said, I can't remember the spell, but it's basically... You know, learn jumping, flying, spinning kicks, bone crunching techniques, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, that sounds like us. So I went in, looked at the school, sat there like I always do, watched, watched two lessons, joined in the third lesson, and I've been doing it ever since. And then in the night, that was early, that would have been early 80s, I started doing that. I'm um, still doing that to this day. And then in the early, mid about 96, I got introduced to John Will um, with a seminar he was doing in Sydney with John Will, uh, Jean-Jacques Machado and Richard Norton was there. And that was my first foray into what's now known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I started training from then. I just, after the seminar, I said to John, so this stuff's cool. I said, where I learn it? He said, from me. I said, where are you based? I said, Geelong. I said, how long does it take to get from Geelong to Campbelltown? I didn't know. I had no idea where Geelong was back then. He said, I'm in Melbourne. I said, well, that's a bit hard. He said, I he said, I'll come and see you. So that's where the relationship started. In the early days, he came up and saw us four times a year. So I got access to him four times a year, as well as he did whatever other Sydney seminars he did. I went along and did those as well. And I've been with John ever since. Still plugging away at BJJ as well. And um, I just, I like anything in martial arts, you know, any weapon, any style. If I can learn something, I'll learn it. I don't have any preconceived ideas of one style or one person's better than the other. And then 
I started, I think it was about 90, must have been, yeah, about 92 I left my instructor. Um, just not really left him, I left the organisation because they were all teaching in small scout halls and, scout halls and um, you know, school halls and that type of thing and we'd already moved to a, a full-time premise. Well, it wasn't really, it was part-time, well, it was part-time but a full-time venue. So there's certain things we wanted to do. We wanted to do our own marketing. We wanted to do our own, you know, T-shirts and cups and we were just all excited about putting everything out there. And um, back then they had like a little committee that you had to go through. And I just said, well, this is a waste of time. I said, you guys are operating with 20 students. I've already got 90 students in, you know, three months. So I said, I'm heading out. If, you, if you're going to try to restrict me there, I'm going to do my own thing. So I walked out, did my own thing. And that was 92. That's where it all started. I had a partner back then, Steve. You might know Steve Percival. He was a partner with me, but he only stayed a partner for about 12 months. And then he went off and did his own thing. And then I moved to, it's 93, let's see, about 94, I moved to the premise I'm in now. Um, and in 2000, I bought it. They wouldn't let me buy it until 2000. So I bought it just prior to GST came in. And that's how I got into it. I'd been working in marketing and I'd owned different businesses previously. And um, my company that I'd worked a long time for got taken over by someone else. They said um, my job was no longer a position there so I went and I looked for other positions and I, I sort of thought well the position I had was just near home I did a lot of travel international national but the office itself was five minutes from home so when I started applying for other positions they're all inner city and north Sydney and they're a nightmare to get to so I just said to my wife I said I don't want to work anymore so she said what do you want to do she said I'm not I said I'm not sure I think I want to do the gym full-time so what do you mean do it full-time I said, oh, I'm going to go sit with the accountant. So I went and sat with my accountant, went through all the numbers. She said, look, she said, you've turned other small companies into million-dollar companies for other people. Do it for yourself. So I left and I started doing the gym in 90, whatever it was, 90, 92 I started the gym. So it's probably about 12 years later I went full-time and haven't looked back since. That's pretty much how I got into it. I love that, Michael. So I'm going to... Something you touched on that you did quite early is you bought your premises. So you mentioned, so it was five years, right? Is that about a five-year window, six-year window, and then you bought it? We moved into the building and I leased it from 93, I think it was, or 94. 94 we moved in and I leased. But I wanted to buy. Like I offered the owners straight away, I said, I want to buy, I want to buy, I want to buy, and they kept saying no, 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 until... 2000, just prior, it must have been February 2000 because I think GST came in in July 2000. So about February 2000, they finally said, yes, we'll sell it to you. And I said, great, I'll buy it. I didn't know how I was going to buy it because my wife was eight and a half months pregnant with our first child, just about to give up work, going back to a single income. But we did it. We just bit the bullet and said, yep, let's do it. And um, haven't looked back since. I know you're a, a big property guy and numbers guy. What was your thinking at that time? Was the numbers in the, the property, was that always a thing that it started early or was, how, how did you evolve to putting all the e emphasis and focus on buying the, the property? And then we'll talk about what followed from there. As soon as I moved out of home, I never rented. I bought my property straight away. So I, I never... I never believed in paying dead money. I just called it dead money. Rent to me was dead money, paying someone else's mortgage for them. 
So it used to burn me every time I had to pay for the gym rent every month. So it was always my goal to buy it. Um, that, that was from day one. Having an interest in property from an early age, I knew that like, at least in Sydney market, property doubled in every 10, every 10 years. You know, property values double on average. You know, some a little bit earlier, some a little bit later, some a little bit more, some a little bit less. So I knew if I didn't buy it, you know, within, if I let it go for another five years, 10 years, it could be out of my reach at that point in time. Um, so that's that's why I really wanted to buy it. And I knew it would just keep going up in value anyway. So, And my wife and I, because she was going off on maternity leave, we knew we'd be on a fixed income for quite a while. We just took out a fixed interest loan. So it was high, but we knew we could cover that cost and we knew that cost wasn't going to go up. So that's what we did. Walk me through your thinking a little, because if, if I look at a lot of school owners today, the, the goal is growth. Like, we're going to open this school and we're going to open the next school and the next school and, and expand the organization. How long have you been in the business? 30 years. 30 years, right. And 30 years, and you've gone the other direction. You've kept one location, you've built it highly profitable, but then you've taken the profits and you've built up this property portfolio and in investment portfolio on the back end of your martial arts business. Was the motivation ever to expand the one martial arts school and go in that direction or uh, where do you feel you sit on, on that spectrum? I'd still like to have a second location, third location, fourth location, but finding the right people to do it is very, very difficult. And a good friend of mine, an associate of yours, Faris Selaveski, he's got a quite a successful martial arts school. I consider him one of my mentors from early on in, on the business side of martial arts. And he has multiple schools, but he doesn't own any of them. He just owns the one he's in. And um, I asked him the question many, many years ago. I said, why haven't you, you know, got yourself a second or third location? You can afford it. And he said, it's just, you said you just triple your headaches and you don't triple your profit. So he, he, all his schools, are, all the individual schools are owned by the, the people who run them. I've been waiting for one black belt to come to me and say, hey, I'm moving out of the area, I want to open a school, but it hasn't happened yet. Still waiting for it. Got it. Now, on the reverse of that, you've got your son, Ethan, who is a big part of your business, right? Stepping up to basically run the school? Yeah, I, I guess in any business you need an exit strategy. Um, so my goal was always to combine my business to both an exit strategy for me and a generational vehicle of wealth for the for future generations of my kids. Um, and I just hope to God that one of them was interested in it. Luckily, they're both interested in it. Um, Ethan's works full time in it as now. Um, funny enough, though, I asked him, would he want to open a second school? And he's no. Now, whether that comes from my input on it, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see what he does down the track. But I guess he can just see that the work that goes into running one business, whether you want to branch out to two. I know a lot of people do it. A lot of people do it successfully. But, um, yeah, just for me, it's just, yeah, just something that's never really grabbed me to, to, to own another and run a second one as my own. But to have an instructor who had an interest in it, I'd be happy to own the building. You know, they can pay rent, do all that. Put all, I'll put all the systems in there but everything else, the day-to-day running would be there up to them. Got it. So do you mind walking us through your investment strategy? I know you've got a bunch of properties and you mentioned now as well, you'd be happy to 
buy the building of a school and have somebody in there as well. So again, thinking on, on the property route. Walk us through your investment portfolio and how you go about generational wealth and how you're working towards that. Okay. I think I've spoken to you before, but probably not in this environment. I, I sort of have three areas that I look at. So one is current self, which means where I am currently in life with my family, my boys and everything else, um, which means I need income to pay for, for current things, you know, like day-to-day living, mortgages, school fees, holidays, cars, all that sort of stuff. Then you need future self. So future self is something I work on for when I'm no longer, not that I won't ever stop working, but I'm no longer reliant on the income from the business. So I need to create a way that I have an income that the business doesn't have to cover me. And then I need generational wealth which is a way to create wealth for future generations. So in my retirement, when I slow down, when my wife and I slow down, we're not going to eat into or affect that generational wealth. That will just stay there. And that'll be the boy's problem to figure out once we're gone. Got it. So do you mind leaning in like a level deeper on how you approach those three things? Yeah, so they're the sort of three, I guess they're three stages of life that we all go through. So I guess I've broken it up into three stages of life and I'm probably not the first one to do it and I've probably gained this, gleaned this from someone's speaking or seminar or something I've heard, um, but it, it made sense to me. Then I have, so they're the three stages of life and then I have three areas to work with. So my first area is my business. So my business looks at my current stage of life, my future life, and my generational wealth. So it can, it can sink into all three areas. And then I have my self-managed super fund, which is a whole subject on its own, and it looks after future self and generational wealth. And then I have my private investments, and they can look after all three areas as well. So they can look after current self, future self, generational wealth. So that's, that's how I sort of structured my financial position, if that makes sense. Yeah, perfect. So what investments do you prefer? Let's, let's start there and then we'll go from there. Uh, I like property. I like tangible things. Um, I was uh, caught up in the global financial crisis. So my wife and I, we lost 50% of our super overnight in one foul swoop. It was just gone. Um, and I know within five to seven years it recouped, you know, it recouped itself as a, you know, as a whole. But that scared me because I thought, well, this is, you know, it's just taken me, if I wanted to retire on that day or do something on that day, half my assets just went out the window. So that was 2007, 2008, I think, somewhere around there. So at that point in time, my wife and I went and started our own self-managed super fund because I said, well, no one's going to control my super except for me. So that was the start of the self-managed super fund. And then the first thing I did was I transferred my building into it. I'd love to know more on that, but just for our American listeners, that'll be equivalent. Super would be equivalent to a 401k, if I've got that right. A 401k, yeah. But I don't know whether they have the access. I don't know whether it's Americans or that can manage their own 401k or whether it's just whatever the employer yeah. uh, to their super fund. That I'm not sure of. So walk us through that process, if you, if you don't mind. And I, I'm, I know I'm sort of asking the 
investment style questions. Um, if there's anything that you feel is not good to share, I mean, you, you're more than welcome to to retract, of course. But but if you go about walk us through that process of your, you mentioned your property into the super fund. How does that work? Like as I said, we we took out a, a, a fixed interest rate loan to buy the building, and I think it was on a five year. A five-year fixed fixed interest loan. So you know, we just said, yeah, okay, we're going to survive five years paying a high interest rate, and da 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 da. But we didn't. We we refinanced and paid it out within three years. So we owned the building within three or four years. So once we owned the building, we sort of had some decisions to make. I mean, it, you know, it's paying rent to us, so which goes on top of your income, which you pay tax on, etc. etc. Et and I thought, well, we've got a self-managed super fund with. Shares in sitting in there, which we can't do anything with. So I thought, let's. Um, I did some research on it, obviously. Looked, to spoke to a few people, and I thought, I'm going to put the building in there. Then it's it's safe. You know, no one can touch it. Debtors can't touch it. No one can touch it. It's in there forever and a day. Um, the downside of putting it into a super fund is that you can't use the equity in it. That's just locked away in your fund. So it has drawbacks. But then it has advantages as well. That was the first stage. And I guess long-term, if you're talking long-term, but like self-managed super funds, once you hit 65, everything you draw out of it's tax-free. So again, for me, I was looking at future self and generational self, I guess. Right. Your property is in the super fund. So how did you then restart the investment cycle into different properties from that point? I already had properties outside of super. So I always look at both areas. So I have properties in and out of super. So I always look at both areas. Um, obviously, properties you put into super are pretty much there for life. Properties you have outside of super, you, you can play with them, you can use the equity in them to, you know, to get more, you can sell them, you can do what you like with them. Um, so that's why I sort of look at both areas. All right. If you were, so you've got a lot of experience in doing investments and working with property what advice would you have for a school owner that's starting out, starting to see success with their school, and now they're looking at, right, well, what's, what's the next step for me? How am I going to start investing? Where would you start? I guess it's hard because you don't know anyone's personal situation. And I guess the biggest thing too, which I didn't mention, which I should always mention, is you know, everything I do is you know, golden stamped by my wife. And you've got to have such a good partner. Yeah, because they've got to be 100% on board with what you're doing. Um, and if you haven't got that, it makes it very, very difficult. So, you know, my wife's very good. I just, I mean, we've just finished doing taxes for the business and for personal and for self-managed. So I just hand a piles of paper to sign and she just signs it all. Just because we have that, you know, I guess undivided trust between each other. But, yeah, you just, I know a lot of couples where one partner wants to invest, you know, they're keen. Um, but the wife's very uh, reserved in her investment strategies. And unless you're both on the same page, it just will not work. So that's my first thing. If you're going to look at any sort of investment, talk to your partner, sit down with them, go through it all, make sure they understand it. They might not want to be involved in it, but as long as they understand it and they support you, I think you know, that's, that's a good starting point. And then, you know, if you're looking at property, um, I have a guy who does all my property for me. Um, I've recommended so many people to him that they, they now have properties with him as well. Um, but 
I only recommend people to him that I know are the right people for him. Is that based on the type of property that he does or the more towards the type of person that you send to him within their calibre to make the investments required? Definitely the type of person. The type of property he will match to them, I just make sure I send him the right type of person. Because, like, you know, he's like every, he's a businessman. I don't want to waste his time with, you know, people who just want to go in and kick the tyres and get some information and go somewhere else and get some information. Although before I um, answer, I like to sit in the background. Uh, one of my students invested with this gentleman first and he, he accumulated four properties with him. And I watched these four. I watched him grow from one property to four over a period of two or three years. I, I didn't invest with him or didn't talk to him until then. And being a student, a long-time student, he gave me all the data. He just gave me all his financials and said, "Here, here's all the financials, my own personal, my wife's financials, everything, with the properties involved in it." He said, "Go through it, have a look at it. If you're comfortable with it, I'll make an introduction for you." So that's pretty rare for someone to give you all that sort of information. Anyway, most people aren't. You know, too happy to share any sort of financial data, but they gave me everything. I can tell you what his wife earned, what he earned, like everything. Because he just wanted—he was so confident in what he was doing that he wanted, you know, he wanted to show me how confident he was. Hence, why referrals is a good strategy. Hundred percent. Having that level of trust from someone—it's—I it, think it's just unbeatable on all levels. Yeah, you can't go past it. Where to next with with all this? You've you've got. You got the business. You got the property portfolios building. Where do you feel your business is headed in the in the next couple of years on all spectrums, on just business growth and on the investment side? Like a lot of um, businesses, especially martial arts, I feel COVID really hit us hard. Um, we've come out of it doing much better than a lot, but I, conservatively, I think it cost us a hundred students, and it probably cost us some growth that we we're starting to get back now. But it's taken like we've been open. We've just celebrated being open 12 months since it all crashed. So, you know, it's like reopening a new business. You know, we've just been going for 12 months now. Although you do, we did have a database, a good database to start off with, which is better than a lot of people had. But I do feel it cost us 100 students. And I think we'll, we'll start to recoup those over the next 12 months. So really I just want to get the business back into a, a good good position. So for me, sort of, for sitting around the 450, I always wanted to get the 500. I never made it the 500 students. So getting to the 400, 450 students is a really a good solid base to, to do what I want to do. We want to do some renovations. We want to redo our bathrooms. We're putting it, want to put it, extend our mezzanine upstairs. We've got all that to do. But um, being a bit reluctant to do it just at the moment. I just want to give the next 12 months and just see see what's happening. Yeah, I think that's probably where we want to – just really what we want to see the business. I mean, it's just a numbers game with the business. Our retention is really good. We do have pretty good retention, but obviously you need still need the numbers coming in. And like anything, the bigger you get, you know, the more the, the numbers seem to leak out the bottom and it's a little bit bigger each time. We're going to make sure we keep recouping those. What do you lean towards your retention and why is it so good? I think 30 years in the business – like, you know, we've refined a lot of systems. We're very systemized. Students know exactly what they're getting. There's no gray areas for them. Um, we have a high standard across the board. Everybody knows that if you can't do what you need to do, you don't progress to the next belt level. There's no if, buts, or maybes. Our black belt gradings are renowned for being tough. 
and anyone who gets through it deserves it. And just, just keeping that high standard, I think, and a good culture. We have a really good family culture. Everybody knows that, you know, you can bring your three-year-old in to train, your 10-year-old, your 15-year-old, or you can train yourself as a parent. And I guess being in business so long, we've got a lot of second-generation students in there. I taught their mums and dads, and now the kids are training. From speaking with you, Michael, I know that you're very straight down the line in your, your systems, and there's no grey areas. What is your stance on a few of those things? Like, let's say things that come up with students, there's excuses or people don't want to commit. Um, I think we've spoken th- about this within the, the context as well, how you go about that. Um, do you mind sharing a bit on that, just your stance on uh, where this comes from, this no grey area and, and not tolerating excuses and everything else? Oh, I think it just comes from growing up. And, you know, my boxing background, yeah. there was no grey areas, you know. You, <laughs> you just did what you were told. There's no but what, you know, but if, but what. There's none of that. Um, and then martial arts, my instructor was really tough. You know, like, yeah, he was tough. What he did to us, you couldn't do now. You just couldn't do it. You just wouldn't be allowed. Um, but it wasn't nothing bad. It's just a different era. You know, they're all... Everyone training on the floor was like 18 to 25 with this, the odd female and the odd younger kid. That was it. So it was a tough environment. And you, you knew, you know, what you had to do to get to your next belt level and there was, no, there was no shortcuts. You knew if you messed up in your grading in certain areas, you weren't getting your belt. We've put systems into place so you, the student can't mess up on their grading because there's tips involved and there's, you know, Nate's go home to parents and go home to teachers. So we sort of take away all the problems that could face us in a grading before the grading happens. So anyone who's not going to get through the grading doesn't step up in front of us. Got it. And your stance on contracts throughout the, the business, how does this combine with this? I'll, I'll go through that in a sec. Yeah, I think it, it's along the same lines, George. I think, you know, if you're going to be serious about anything, you need to commit to it. So, you know, if you're not prepared to commit for, I mean, we do a minimum contract of six months. If you're not prepared to commit to something for six months, you're really not going to give it a good go. And even six months, I don't. The way I talk to parents and people about it is like, on average, you know, you need to repeat a routine about 21 times to make it a habit. So, you know, if you're doing a six-month contract, you're training twice a week, you're doing about 26, 26 lessons. 46 lessons, whatever it works out to be, you know, you may be getting to a habit just. And that's the problem. If you're just doing short-term contracts or no contracts at all, it's very hard to get into the habit or even create a routine. So we've been pretty strong on that stance. We still are. We've just introduced the month-to-month price, but we bumped it right up. And it's really for the people who it's not advertised. It's just for those people who we just know aren't going to get across the line on any contract. They're, you know, have contract phobia, whatever the case may be. We had one the other day. It was the grandparents, you know, they, they were paying for their, their, their grandchild. Mum and dad wouldn't pay for it. They just didn't want to commit to a contract. So we said, oh, yeah, right, it'll cost you an extra 20 bucks a, a week and you can do a month to month. They said, yep, yeah, fine. So we get an extra $20 a week. And my guess is you'll probably, they'll probably be around in six months or 12 months anyway paying a higher price. As long as they're not in the contract, they're happy. <laughs> they're happy, yeah. To pay the extra so 20 bucks a week. 
I think yeah. we'll be the exception, not the rule for us. I still like the contracts. I like the commitment. Um, I mean, we have black belts have been with us for 20 years. We still do their contract every year. Yeah, 100%. I, I think sometimes there's a, maybe people that downplay a contract. I see some gyms do this, but then again, all love to the gym industry. They kind of abuse the contracts that they have to say no contracts. And I see sometimes in their sales, uh, in their marketing material, they advertise no contracts as a, as a selling point. But then really, I mean, if, if you can't commit for a short amount of time, is it really going to be beneficial? So I think it's the value that you place on the contract. You know, some people have been, it's a trigger word. You know, they've, something went wrong in a contract and they carry that weight with them through life. But I think it's really good to look at it in the positive sense of what is it that you, does it tie in with your values of what you stand for? And I think that's something that you've communicated with us in the past. It's not the culture that you want to build of people that are going to try and quit. And so it does reinforce a commitment to doing the thing that you said you want to do. And, and I think it's something that it kind of lacks in society just in general is people are very easy to go back on their word of committing to something, but then just not sticking through with it. And I think it's, it's good in a sense to remind people the commitment they had on themselves because they're doing it for themselves and the contract could just be the thing that keeps them re-evaluing their, their decisions. Yeah, 100%, George. I, I think where society is very dangerous. It's like a transient society now and everything they do, they're just in and out, in and out. If something doesn't work, they just go to the next thing. And that, that, that scares me a lot. There's no resilience. That's the one thing that most kids and people who, who start with us, we, they just lack resilience in all areas of their life. And I think that's the one thing martial arts can really reinforce is resilience. Yeah, I had this reflection earlier, and I think I mentioned it just talking about maybe it was in a parenting situation. But um, when we grew up, we never had choice. Like you, your choice was limited. You had to do a thing or not. In our case, growing up in South Africa, it's like you got rugby and cricket and emphasis on rugby and nothing else. And stepping into this new age and how kids grow up is choice is just, information is just, there's no shortage. It's how do you filter out the information? So there's just too much choice. And, and I think the danger that social media and things like YouTube have expressed upon young kids is they see the result and not the journey. And so it's real easy to just see someone doing something at such an elite level on camera and you see it everywhere and you just, it's really easy to assume that I could just do that and it's, it's real simple. But then the resilience to actually get there is missing. The, the journey is missing. When people see the results and not the journey and they try and apply and get the same result and they don't get it, disappointment kicks in and, okay, well, I'll just try X, Y, Z. I feel martial arts does help with that. You, you mentioned this is a concern for you. What have you seen that's a real difference in the way that, you know, when you started 30 years ago and there was this resilience, there was this more hardcore training and now you can't adapt those old strategies with a younger generation and you know, obviously for for some obvious reasons and things like that. But where do you feel things can adapt that you can get the same results and that same resilience out of, out of the younger generation? I think we can get the same results. I think it just takes longer. Like I guess what I would say is say one of my red belts nowadays would have been one of my green belts 20 years ago. 
the skill level would have been roughly the same. But we've had to mould our syllabus to suit the, the times, I guess. When I first started training, we'd do like, you know, walking stance, upper block, lower block, and we'd do that up and down the gym for half an hour. And we'd just do it because that's what we were told to do. But you couldn't do that now. You'd have half your student base walk out within a month. So, you know, you continually need to be creating something to keep them engaged. I think it's the great thing about martial arts. It has the ability to do that because you can do the same thing 10 different ways and the student thinks they're doing something different. So disguise repetition. But it, it takes work and it takes skill. And I think the other thing that we've noticed with the kids, which is sad to see, is that a lot of the basic skills that kids used to have are gone now. Like we have kids who come in who don't know how to jump, don't know how to climb, even running, and that is a, an effort for them. And these kids aren't overweight or anything like that. They, they just haven't got the skills. You know, when we, were, when we were young, we were climbing fences, climbing trees. We had monkey bars in our schoolyard. We climbed up and fell off them. None of that exists anymore. You know, unless, you, if, unless you're a parent who takes your kids outside to do something like that, the kids don't get exposed to it. It's all too dangerous at school now. So, yeah, we, just, we, we teach kids how to climb up onto blocks and pads and then how to jump off them and then bend their knees so they don't land with straight legs. Um, so a lot of the basic fundamental skills are, are gone. You have to reteach the kids before you, before you can even start teaching them how to kick and punch. You need to teach them how to really walk and talk again. With respect to BJJ, the first thing that a new student wants to do as BJJ is go get on the internet. And that's the first thing I tell them not to do. Say so stay off online until you've got at least six months under your belt and then just dip your toe in the water. Because as you said earlier, they're, they're seeing the end result of maybe... 10 years experience doing a technique and they think oh that looks easy I'll go I'll go and do that and then they come in the gym they try it on someone and it just doesn't work and they don't understand why it doesn't work because it works on the video and the analogy I always give them is I say look if I stood you in front of the mirror and I taught you how to do a jab I'm pretty sure in an hour I could teach you how to do a reasonable jab and in an hour how many jabs could you do you know, like unfit first time an hour, 500, say 500 to be, do it pretty easy. So now let's go to the BJJ mats. I'm going to teach you how to do an arm bar. How long do you do 500 arm bars? They can't calculate it. And that's the big difference between the stand up and the ground. The ground you can teach, you can do repetitions pretty quickly. The ground you cannot. And the BJJ has got more videos out there than anything else. <laughs> it's definitely great to have an abundance of information but it's also dangerous in the sense of and we find that in a coaching aspect that um, and we do that in our in our in our partners membership where we have a thing called the on-ramp which blocks out the 130 other courses <laughs> in the program that you just stay on the track that because there's you learn one step at a time the right things in the right sequence i think it's super important and it's easy to yeah, it's, it's so easy to get distracted and, and see the cool thing and you think, I just want to do the cool thing. But the cool thing is just, I need to learn the fundamentals before the cool thing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That, that's, I see that as a big obstacle in martial arts today in all areas, is the, is the online presence of access to something so easy without doing the, 
all the fundamentals it takes to get to that point. If ever I'm watching a video on martial arts, I turn the sound off. I don't listen to them at all. I just look at their footwork, their hands, their hip movement, and that'll tell me all I need to know. Why do you prefer to keep the sound off? They're great technicians, but they may not be great at teaching, especially when it comes... I mean, teaching on video is a whole other level than teaching in front of the class. Um, and a lot of the... Even a lot of the great instructors, I watch their tutorials, and they're doing all the right things, but they're not saying it. So it's very hard to... You've probably heard of, like, the, the terms invisible jiu-jitsu or uh, royal jiu-jitsu. It's all the things that a person does automatically without realising they're doing it. Well, they know they're doing it, but they just do it automatically. It's in, it's in built in their DNA now. And, they, you know, to do a single move, they might be doing 20 different things they're not talking about. But unless you do those 20 different things, you're not going to get their result. Unconscious competence, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So I'm always very, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a visual learner anyway. Hey, love it. Michael, been great chatting to you. We've, we've gone through around about different aspects um, and I really wanted to connect with you because I know you've got a million things that you can share and I just wanted to really extract a, a, a few gold things. But any, any last words, any, anything to, to add before we wrap things up? If, if you are open to people reaching out to you, you're more than welcome to share details. How, if you prefer not, Please don't, because people might do reach out to you. <laughs> any last words? Um, look, I think for any martial arts school owner is that, um, you know, obviously your school is very important, but also look at, you know, like I, I'm a big believer in what I just said, you know, look at the three areas of your life, you know, where you are currently, where you want to be when you retire, and what you want to leave behind. And I think, I think if you focus on those three areas, everything else will sort of make sense to you. 100%. Awesome. Michael, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for being on. I'll see you on the call during the week. Thanks, George. Can't say it was a pleasure, but it was fun. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> thanks. All right, George. Take care. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect with other top smart martial arts school owners and have a chat about marketing, lead generation, what's working now, and or just have a, a gentle rant about things that are happening in the industry, then I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group, and in there I share a lot of extra videos and downloads and worksheets, things that are working for us when we work, help school owners grow, and share a couple of video interviews and a bunch of cool extra resources. So uh, it's called the Martial Arts Media Community, and an easy way to access it is if you just go to the domain name martialartsmedia.group. So martialartsmedia.group, G-R-O-U-P. Uh, there's no .com or anything, martialartsmedia.group. That will take you straight there. Uh, request to join and I will accept your invitation. Thanks. I'll speak to you on the next episode. Cheers. That will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening. If you need help building your martial arts school, check out martialartsmedia.com.